Welcome to the Zen Business Podcast, where we explore philosophies and practices for experiencing a more fulfilled and joyous life as a business owner, executive, or entrepreneur. Hello and welcome to episode 34 of the Zen Business Podcast. My name is Simon Bell and joining us on the show today is clinical psychologist, author and meditation teacher, Malcolm Huckster. Mal has been practicing mindfulness for over 40 years and has been teaching it in both a clinical and public setting for more than 25. Mal originally learnt these practices from the Buddhist tradition, ordaining as a Buddhist monk in Thailand in his early 20s. He's been a psychologist since 1991 and has worked with hundreds of clients using mindfulness, compassion, loving kindness, and a myriad of other scientifically validated techniques to improve well-being. His book, Healing the Heart and Mind with Mindfulness, Ancient Path, Present Moment, is aimed at anyone who wishes to use mindfulness practices for psychological freedom. In this episode, we explore how to cultivate equanimity, which is a Buddhist philosophy that results in greater mental resilience, balance, and the experience of flow. This relaxed and peaceful conversation is packed full of wisdom for living a calm and purposeful life whilst running or scaling your company. Enjoy! Great to have you on the show, and I'm so grateful to have come across uh, your presence online and uh, and the work that you've you've done uh, over the many many years of of uh, both psychology and and Buddhist teachings uh, which I thought would be a great place to start I thought we could have you share a little bit about your background and your work and and the combination of of Buddhist philosophy and practices with with modern science okay now okay when when I say enough you tell me to stop because <laughs> I, I can keep going I can go for a long time too easy Okay, so uh, I, I first became interested in Buddhism when I was going to art school in Melbourne, Victoria, uh, and I was about 19 years old, uh, and I was sort of suffering a little bit, <laughs> and I found that Buddhism, I sort of get into, I got introduced to Buddhism through Tibetan Buddhism, and at that time I was living in Melbourne and you know, going to our school and was, my mind was open to explore all sorts of things. And I was living at a Tibetan Buddhist house called Tara House and uh, really getting involved in it. And then I went to a, a talk by a, a Theravadan Buddhist monk called Prat Kantipalo, who was uh, an English-born monk. I've uh, been a, a Buddhist monk for many years, I, I guess about 10 years at that time. And I really liked what he was talking about. And he started to talk about mindfulness. And I said, well, how can I practice this a lot? How can I really get into this? And he said, uh, you could become a Buddhist monk. So I said, okay, I'll do that. So I decided to go to Thailand, at, which I did. And I became a Buddhist monk um, at the age of about 21 by this time. I lived with him for a while and hung out with him for a while, learnt, learnt the suttas and uh, became a Buddhist monk in Thailand and there I stayed for two years and uh, sort of immersed myself in that culture, in the culture of uh, the monastic life. Uh, I learned the language and uh, practiced 
but there were some things that happened after two years. I, I, I got quite ill and I needed to return to Australia, so I did. Um, and I won't go into all the personal uh, stories around that, but uh, when I came back to Australia, I needed to have a job. So I decided to become a psychologist, so that's what I did. And I trained as a psychologist uh, and then began working as a psychologist in about 1991, I think, yep, in Dubbo. And I worked on the child and family health team. And uh, what I realized that what I mostly brought to that, that position was not so much my experience, uh, my, my training in university, but it was more my life experience. And my life experience, and I was a, a dad by then, you know, I was, I've got three sons now. So by that time, I'd had three sons and I was um, uh, working as a psychologist and I was bringing all this understanding about what I did. And much of it was based on my life experience. Much of it was based on what I understood from my own mind from my meditation practice. And so I, you know, I stayed in Dubbo for about three years. Then I came to Lismore and was an adolescent mental health worker for another three years. And then I... Uh, moved up to adult mental health worker, and then I went back to university, did my master's. I did that part time. So uh, I've been a I've been a clinical psychologist for about twenty years now, nearly twenty years, and um, and a uh, a psychologist now for thirty years, and a Buddhist meditation practitioner for about forty five, I think. <laughs> I'm 64 now, so I began when I was 19, so it's about 45, 45 years, nearly. So um, I integrate these two approaches. Um, these days I'm um, a private psychologist. I've worked in London in um, psychiatric wards. I've worked in community mental health teams in London. I've worked on Christmas Island, and there was a lot of trauma and grief there and I managed to uh, teach detainees mindfulness and equanimity and loving kindness and uh, all sorts of different practices that were helping them survive that difficult experience of being in detention centers. So uh, the way I joined these two is basically by understanding that my overarching framework for understanding freedom from of uh, freedom from dukkha, which is dukkha is suffering, um, probably best explained as unsatisfactoriness. There is my overarching paradigm is that of the Buddha's teachings, basically. In particular, in a therapeutic sense, it's the overarching um, framework of the Eightfold Path, the Buddha's Eightfold Path, which consists of wisdom ethics and meditation or cultivation. So the Eightfold Path is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration. So that's the overarching framework. Um, I won't go into details about that. I can give you papers that I've written and chapters that I've written and books and so on. However, this overarching framework uh, can be a framework for me to understand how all these therapies work in the effort to release people from the bind they are in in terms of their suffering. 
So, you know, we can put cognitive therapy in there, we can put acceptance and commitment therapy in there, we can put uh, compassion focused therapy in there, we can put a whole range of different approaches, uh, CBT in there, and so on. A whole range of different approaches that uh, conform with this understanding of the Eightfold Path, as far as I can see it. And because I come from that perspective, um, Personally, people are attracted to that. People often call me up because I have an understanding of meditation, how we can apply meditation to it and, and so on. So I guess that's a brief summary of my pathway to become a clinical psychologist as well as a Buddhist practitioner and joining those two. And there's a lot we can say about this, but maybe I better stop there before I go on and rave. <laughs> Well, there is one point that I do want to drill down on, and that's going to be the focus of our conversation today. And when we caught up earlier, uh, it was one of the first things that we spoke about, and that is the term equanimity and, and the cultivation of equanimity, which is a uh, some of you that are watching the show may have seen that on my shirt. It's one of my, my favorite words or terms or philosophies. Um, and so the minute we, we, just started, we, we discussed the cultivation of equanimity, I thought that's exactly what I'd love to drill down on today. So Mel, what is equanimity for those that may have seen the word or heard the word, but don't actually understand what it means? Uh, equanimity, as far as I understand, is this mm. sense of being unshaken by the vicissitudes of life, being unshaken by the ups and downs of things. Um, sometimes I refer to equanimity to being like bamboo because bamboo, as you know, is a very strong um, structure, but it's also very flexible. Uh, mm. So it kind of bends in the wind, but in and of itself, it's quite strong. Like I know in Asia, if you've ever traveled in Asia, you'll see they'll do a lot of scaffolding with bamboo. So yes, it's I quite have a seen strong that. <laughs> so, but it is also flexible. So equanimity is like that. Sometimes we can think about equanimity like resilience, uh, which is resilience means bouncing backness, like coming back to center, sort of being strong and resilient is this sense of equanimity. Uh, other ways we could describe it, um, well, I could, talk, I could talk about some Pali words. There's some Pali terms for it. Yeah. Well, what, tell me, why, why do you feel it's important as a practice to, uh, for, let's say, obviously, for our listeners who are mostly entrepreneurs, business leaders, for, for busy people who experience that stress and anxiety on a regular basis, they're, up, they're, they're living big lives, why do you think it's important for them to, to cultivate equanimity? And, and maybe what are some of the practices that they could take on to, to cultivate greater equanimity in their life? I think equanimity is essential. It's an essential thing. Um, equanimity sort of balances our perspective. It brings a balanced perspective to life. And uh, in Buddhism, we talk about uh, the eight worldly winds. You know how I was talking about bamboo is flexing with the wind? Well, there's eight worldly winds. It's their, their four pairs of opposites. These pairs of opposites are praise and blame, loss and gain, uh, uh, pain and pleasure, and fame and disrepute. 
Another way you can understand fame is like social acceptance and social rejection. So in, in, a, in a corporate sector or in the business world, um, I, I'm, a, I'm a small business owner myself. I'm, a, I'm in private practice. I, I have to put in best statements. I have to do all these business things. Uh, a lot of the time it's a lot of admin. I don't have any admin workers. I don't have any receptionists. I just operate by myself. One has to be balanced. One has to accept the fact that it's inevitable we're going to lose things. It's an inevitable that not everybody's going to like us. You know, some people are going to blame us for things. It's inevitable that uh, there's going to be some pain in life. Life isn't always successful. Um, it's inevitable that we will fail and we will succeed. You know, there's going to be failures. I, I think there's a book called, uh, there was a, I think there's a talk by Pema Chodron called Fail, Fail, Fail Again, Fail Better, something like that. Equanimity gives us the capacity to bounce back in these vicissitudes of life. It gives us the uh, center, sense of centeredness to take, take the good with the bad, to take the vicissitudes to understand that it's not the end of all things. It's like, say, we're going through great losses financially. Mm. Something better will happen. Something will change. It inevitably changes. Equanimity is essentially a wisdom quality. And um, there are near and far enemies of equanimity. Um, this is a term that's used in Buddhism, near and far mm. enemies. The far enemy, a far enemy is like its opposite. A near enemy is like a false facsimile. It's like a, um, a false representation of this quality. So the far enemies of equanimity are emotionally overreactive or unbalanced or uh, really shaken around or blown around you know, by the eight worldly winds, praise and blame, loss and gain, pain, pleasure. And fame and disrepute, sort of, kind of really scattered around in that respect, really uncentered. Um, that's they're the opposite. They're they're like the far enemy. The near enemies, however, are really interesting. They're a kind of um, a detached aloofness, a, a, a disinterested impartiality, a, a disengaged disengaged uh, superiority, this sense that uh, I'm cool, I'm above this, I'm not attached in any way, I'm not affected by this, you know, I can be, I can be, uh, you know, I'm stable, I'm balanced and all this, but in fact, it's just uh, kind of, it's a deceptive presentation, it's a facade, it's not really what equanimity is. Interesting, look, uh, if you come from a framework of um, uh, understanding the four divine abodes, and there's some, something about, I'll just come back a bit, equanimity from a Buddhist perspective is the result of practice, the result of insight meditation practice actually, or meditation practice. And there's many ways to cultivate it. Insight meditation is one. Insight meditation uh, is, that, is the cultivation of insight basically or seeing clearly seeing distinctly understanding things so 
often it's uh, similar, uh, often it's mindfulness meditation or the four foundations of mindfulness are considered synonymous with insight meditation. But insight meditation isn't confined to just the four aspects of meditation, uh, four foundations of mindfulness. So insight meditation is one way we can cultivate equanimity. Um, another way we can cultivate it is with deep concentration. So coming back to these eight worldly winds and being blown around, when we can have an understanding of life, when we have wisdom, equanimity is the result. When we see the ups and downs of life happening, we don't get shaken around, we just take it in our stride. Uh, when we have our failures, we don't take them personally. We don't um, feel that they um, are the way we should be or the way we are. We just kind of bounce back. And so these near enemies, both the near enemies and far enemies, um, are not what equanimity is about. Equanimity is about being centered, stable, resilient, bouncing back, uh, uh, able to take life as it is, and also not take it personally. Yes, yes. That's a big one, Absolutely. not taking it personally. Because we tend to take things personally, like someone will say something about us, and it's like we believe them, what they're saying about us to be true. You know, we, we don't like... We, we don't mind the praise, you know, if they say, oh, you're the best psychologist I've ever met. I've heard that say, people say that. <laughs> All the time. I kind of take it with, I take it with a pinch of salt, you know, because I know it, at the next moment, someone could say, oh, you're the worst psychologist I've ever met. And so I don't try not to take either of those personally, if that makes sense. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, because the practice of, you know, when you take that feedback, when it's good feedback, you know, as, as the truth, it's a lot harder than to take the negative feedback as not the truth and yeah, to be yeah. able to repel that. So it's, it's a beautiful, and I love that definition or that example of the bamboo, you know, in yeah, the yeah. wind. I think that's beautiful. Mel, what I would love to dig a little bit deeper on, if that's okay, is the near enemies, because it's the first, oh, yeah, first yeah. time that I've heard this, and I think, um, I think that they would add some value for people to be able to recognize, you know, where there's an absence of equanimity in their, in their, in their day-to-day life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I, think I know this uh, near enemy, because when I first went off and became a Buddhist monk, I think I was trying to get away from a lot of suffering and a lot of hassle. Um, there was, I had family problems and, uh, you know, there was quite a bit of suffering back in Australia. I just wanted out. I wanted to get away from it. So, you know, I think part of my travel to Thailand was avoidance, really, you know. And I remember, I remember sort of thinking at the time when I was listening to all the troubles that were happening happening in Australia, that I was above it all. I was disconnected from it in some respects. I think really I was uh, engaging in the near enemy of equanimity. I was kind of having this sense of superiority, a uh, sense of aloofness. It doesn't affect me. And so um, I see people sometimes in my practice that demonstrate this. Often they're Buddhists, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> not, not sorry, I'll, I'll take that back. 
sometimes they're Buddhists, sometimes they're Buddhists, and they're kind of uh, rising above it all. Uh, one time, for example, I had someone who has been in a relationship for seven years, and um, the person had decided uh, um, to drop them and to break the relationship off. And they came in and saw me, and they said, "Oh, look, I'm I'm okay. I'm yeah. I'm right, risen above it. In fact, they were dissociating from it. They were they were they started looking mm. cool. I don't care. It's that kind of not caringness. And and clinically, we have something called dissociation. Uh, dissociation is where um, the con- connections between behaviours, thoughts, sensations, and knowledge all get kind of uh, split mm. and cut off from each other. So people are not really connected with yeah. reality. They're, it's a coping skill and sometimes we need it, especially if we have a trauma, we need to dissociate from that trauma to just to get through. But the healing of that trauma is back to, is about re-engaging somehow to actually experience what we're experiencing, to, to process the events to allow them to process in our minds. It's called exposure in therapy, but it's being able to re-engage with the emotional affect or the emotionality of that experience so that we can process it and let it go. So the near enemies, often the near enemies are coming out when people aren't willing to engage in something, aren't willing to connect. So, you know, this, this process of near enemies and far enemies, the way we deal with the far enemies, which are the direct opposites of these qualities, is to cultivate that quality. Like the way we deal with emotional overreactiveness, the way we deal with uh, can in kind of falling for the eight mm. worldly winds or being around, blown around by the eight worldly winds, is by cultivating equanimity. And I can talk about cultivating equanimity a little bit later. But the way we deal with the near enemies of a particular quality is not by uh, cultivating that quality anymore, but it's by looking mm. towards another quality. And for, for equanimity, the near enemy of equanimity, what we need to cultivate in particular is compassion. So you think about someone who's sort of cut off, disengaged from feeling what's happening in the world, saying that they're equanimous, but in fact they're just presenting as the near enemy of equanimity. They're kind of um, uh, retreated into this uh, space of being cut off from the world. They're not engaged. If they can develop some compassion, they can actually open up their sensitivity. They can open up their softness. They can open up their heart. To actually feel what it's like to, you know, see an, suffering from another person's perspective, and also be open to their own suffering, to their own painful emotions. Yeah, I'm really hearing that. It's that compassion for self as much as it is compassion for others. Compassion is the antidote for the near enemy of equanimity. Mm. Yeah, it's beautiful, and it's I love it because it really speaks to that that. Um, uh, the difference between trying to transcend an issue whilst still at some level, mm. n- you know, believing it's there, believing it to be true, believe- and it still has an influence yeah, or yeah. an impact over your way of operating as opposed to 
acknowledging it and possibly even leaning into it yep. and accepting it and, and having it disappear in that process. Yep. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm thinking of that term called spiritual bypass. Right. I don't know if you've heard of that spiritual no. bypass, that term. It's when um, people need to go into personal issues like, you know, this happens to me. I see this all the time. People um, who choose to go and meditate, they choose to go somewhere off and go to the monasteries or something like that um, as a way of avoiding something that's happening in their personal lives. And I'm bringing myself as an example here. You know, I had a lot of stuff going down when I was an adolescent in my home. And I can see back now that I wanted to escape it. I didn't want to face up to it. I, I, but that was the only thing I could do at the time. So mm. if I continued to escape it and not look at it, not process it, not go into it, not um, see it through and understand it by avoiding it, like going off to the monasteries and presenting, uh, pretending not to acknowledge my family, for example, then that's called spiritual bypassing. It's, it's kind of like a loop around it. We think we can fix it up by getting enlightened and we just go for enlightenment, but the fundamentals haven't been processed yet. So there's a bit of a controversy about this. Some people say, well, you don't need to do that stuff. You don't need to go into therapy or anything like that. But from my personal experience, I've noticed that it can actually block progress in meditation. If you've still got some issues from your earlier life that you haven't quite processed, you haven't faced up to, you haven't uh, come to terms with, mm. it becomes a barrier, it becomes an obstacle. So this, yeah. is, this is what's called spiritual bypassing. And I was only thinking of that when you were talking about what you were saying about being able to come face to face with an issue. In fact, that's one way we define mindfulness. Uh, you know, there's many ways of defining mindfulness. One way of describing it is facing up to life, like turning towards experience and looking it in the face, coming face to face with it rather than avoiding it, yeah. like shifting your attention away from it. Yeah, beautiful. And I can really hear that that's your access to true spiritual growth and and um and freedom from suffering in that particular area as well as is transforming it as opposed to transcending it being able to have it be disappeared uh and complete yeah. and have that have that completion piece really take place to have that that integrated experience of life and that that level of fulfillment and peace of mind it's it's beautiful yeah. so mel what practices you mentioned insight meditation uh as a, as an access to cultivating equanimity can you maybe run through some of the practices that you that you go through in Insight Timer, and and what some of the things that people can to, can take on on a daily yeah. basis or throughout their their regular lives? In terms of equanimity, or in terms of life in general, I'd say um, let's talk about let's keep on equanimity, and then, okay. well, we know that you know cultivating equanimity is going to make a difference in you know across yep. all areas of life, really. Equanimity is a is a is a um, is a result of practicing insight meditation. So it's the result of meditation. It's what we come to when we practice. And equanimity is also a practice 
in and of itself. Yes. So um, there's a couple of ways. Like meditation could be understood as cultivating two qualities. One quality or one aspect is serenity. Another aspect is insight. Now, with all, with all these meditation practices, you will have effort, mindfulness, and concentration. Remember how I mentioned the Eightfold Path? Yes. Um, right for you, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Those three factors um, uh, uh, relate to the meditation component of the Eightfold Path. So meditation could be understood as having those three factors. Concentration, another way of describing it is samadhi, refers to bringing attention into one place, gathering attention, and putting it into one place. So it's a gathering in and of attention and placing it in, in one space. Um, there's a lot we can talk about samadhi. Insight meditation is more about um, not necessarily one space, but being attentive to a whole range of things. Generally, with serenity meditation, you're just putting it in one space. With insight meditation, you can have a number of objects and you can go backwards and forwards. What you're looking for in insight meditation, usually with mindfulness, is how things change, how the nature of things, the way they change, uh, the way they affect each other. You're looking at something called dependent origination or dependent arising, which is kind of quite a complex principle, but essentially it is looking at cause-effect relationships. Um, so you're looking at how things work, what gives rise to that, what, uh, how things change, the characteristics of the experience, like how everything is impermanent, how everything is interdependent, mm. and how everything is not self or empty of thingness. And how everything, everything that's conditioned is essentially unsatisfactory <laughs> because it changes. <laughs> I'm laughing totally. about that, but you've got to have a, a, you know, a humorous perspective on it. So insight meditation is that. Insight meditation emphasizes inquiry. Serenity aspects of meditation emphasize absorption. Now, coming back to, equanim coming back to equanimity, when you pay attention to something, um, and I'll give you one definition of mindfulness that I've heard, or one description. Mindfulness refers to remembering to bring attention uh, to immediate experience with care and discernment. That's from Bhikkhu Bodhi, by the way. Remembering to bring attention to immediate experience with care and discernment. That puts it in a context, puts it in a context of wisdom and um, ethics, because you're applying care. Uh, good intentions, meaning care and kindness and um, intentions of goodwill. Uh, and also remembering. Actually, sati, mindfulness, means remembering. So you're remembering to bring attention to things. Whenever you remember to bring attention to things, you start to see the way they are. You develop an understanding of something. Like, for example, if I'm remembering to bring attention to uh, an unhelpful pattern, emotional pattern I have. If I remember to be attentive to it, I'm not taking it personally, you know, seeing it for what it is, you know, it's not self, it's just this event, 
Um, and I'm not dissociating mm. from it. I'm connecting with it. I start to understand it for what it is. So this leads to wisdom. This leads to insight. And wisdom, uh, equanimity is a, an aspect of wisdom. We can start to see things as they are. We don't take things personally. We see mm. that everyone is on their own life trajectories. We see the connection between actions and consequences. So we have a sense of matter-of-factness about it. This is another way of understanding equanimity. It's just the way it is. So if someone says something horrible to us, we can see, oh, it's just their thoughts. It's their problem. Yeah, Actually, this is- I really hear. <laughs> I could really hear the access to then flow, flow state then, yeah. because there is that. Yeah. Um, I sometimes refer to it as that increasing your layer of Teflon as things just you know s- slide off. Yeah, it, yeah, um, slide off. Yeah. So coming coming now to the other way of cultivating equanimity, uh, which is with as a surrendered meditation practice, equanimity is a quality of wisdom. And it is also a, um, it's one of what we call one of the four divine abodes. And I think I mentioned these earlier. These are divine places to hang out in, like psychological yes. spaces. We have, they, they are loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, sometimes called empathetic joy, and equanimity. Equanimity. Um, and this is, equanimity sort of balances these, these heart qualities. And in itself is balancing but so what we can do is if we can get some inkling of equanimity somewhere in our hearts or maybe we can be reminded of someone who is really peaceful or we can have a, a moment of peacefulness in our daily life somewhere or we can mm. uh, nourish it somehow then we can latch onto it we can uh, yes. When I say latch on to it, not in a grasping, clinging way, but like uh, directing our attention to it. So any meditation practices is all about where you direct your attention. And I think I mentioned it this morning. There's something by um, William James, the forefather of psychology. He said something like, what we attend to becomes our reality. So with serenity meditation, you're choosing to pay attention to a particular thing. And with this, with the, if it's equanimity, you choose to pay attention to something that stimulates or some, um, something that reflects this quality of equanimity. As you go into that, you enrich it. You enrich it with um, somatic experiences or recollections or memories or imagination in some way. And in that way, you're, you're making it stronger. So you're going deeper into this space of equanimity. Then once you're in there, once you've got it sort of running, you begin to absorb into it. I'm talking about the processes of serenity meditation. Serenity meditation is all about absorption into a quality. So you absorb into this quality and then it becomes you. Yeah, that's beautiful. Mal, I, I know you're about to head into five weeks of, of retreat or five or six weeks of, of personal retreat. And we spoke this morning and, you know, we, we really hit it off and, and the idea of 
coming on and speaking about equanimity, um, you know, really resonated and got me excited. And so I appreciate you jumping straight back on a call to actually record the podcast, you know, hours after the pre-production meeting. So um, I appreciate you giving uh, me and, and our listeners the time and um, and sharing this wisdom, uh, sharing your wisdom with us. You're welcome. You're most welcome. It's uh, it's pleasurable. Thank you. And um, and I know people will, oh, and I'll put the link in there to Insight Timer if people haven't downloaded Insight Timer before to use that as a tool or a guide for their meditations, uh, for them to do that and and obviously to, to find your meditations on there. I'm sure it'll make a massive difference in their lives. Thank you for listening to the Zen Business Podcast. Wherever you are right now in the world, I'm grateful for your time, for your attention, and for allowing my guests and I to be part of your day. Please like, comment, or share if you feel moved to do so. And if you'd like to match faces with voices, you can jump over to our YouTube channel where you can find all of the episodes that we have filmed so far. Thank you once again, and until next time, stay safe, be kind, and enjoy the now.